0: As Frank Sheed said, we let the horizon of this world fill our view as it did not fill Christ's. Welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your seasonal Catholic podcast on evangelization and discipleship. I'm Mike Goma and I'm here to walk you through the essentials of what it means to follow Christ as a Catholic disciple. Let's begin. Now, last week, we did a walkthrough of Jesus's own prayer life. We looked at the rhythms of Judaism with feasts and psalms and pilgrimages, as well as the heroes and histories of Jewish prayer, Abraham's faithful obedience, Jacob's wrestling, Moses's intercession, the prophetic witness and judgment, et cetera. But we also saw the difference that Christ makes, namely that sonship is the secret sauce. It's the key to understanding Christian prayer to the father in the son. We are to adhere to our Father, be bold in Jesus' name, be faithful, watchful, patient, persistent, and above all, humble. So this week, we have a question. What did Jesus value, prioritize, and attack the most? See, this world is loud and shiny and demanding. We all know this. The Christian life is one that is found in the world, but not of the world. But it is so very difficult to put kingdom, priorities and values above the clamor around me. How do I know what are Christ's priorities? How do I, as a disciple, adopt his values, Especially since the Bible says, what is highly esteemed among man is an abomination to God. OK, so how do I redirect my cultural inclinations, my worldly desires, in order to align them with Jesus Christ's? The reality is, Jesus Christ is the God-man, right? He is fully God and fully man. But sometimes I feel like we dehumanize him for the sake of his divinity, that we're trying to uphold his divinity, that we let it drown out his humanity. Yes, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is God-made man. But this man then reveals to us the heart of God through his human heart. This is where the whole devotion to the sacred heart comes from. Thus, the humanity of Christ perfect and filled with grace becomes our standard. He becomes the standard of values, the standard of priorities. He establishes himself as the standard and thus our pleasures and pains, our duties and privileges have to be ordered to and interpreted through him. So what we want to do is understand Jesus as both revealer and redeemer. Vatican II's Gaudium Et Spez taught that Jesus Christ fully reveals man to himself and God to humanity. He communicates and reveals the very inner life of God to us. And, as Frank Sheed said, he communicates the innermost meaning of man to man. As a Redeemer, he's the bridge over the gulf that sin created between us and God. He reestablishes the oneness, which we could call atonement, atonement, or reconciliation which brings about a radical newness of life. So if our goal is to become a citizen of his world, a disciple of the master, of the rabbi, if we're to become a member of his kingdom, the more of the man, Christ Jesus, that we disciples can imitate, the more of his values and his priorities become ours. And thus the holier and more intimate with God we become. So Jesus is the revealer and the redeemer. Second that we need to understand Is we need to look at his values from the perspective of what is the thing Jesus hated the most? If you were to look at all the things he said, all the things he did, and add them up, what would you say is the thing he hated the most? I think if we're doing this character study of the person of Jesus Christ, we would say, okay, let's do this character study. What did he attack? What vice did Jesus attack the most? I think most people would say it's religious hypocrisy, right? The hypocrites. The scribes and Pharisees, blind guides, hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, certainly that is there, but it's not number one. Number one is greed for money. Isn't that funny? It's greed for money. So let's walk through how he attacks this vice in word and deed. For instance, in Matthew chapter six, verse four, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you cannot serve God and mammon. In Luke 16, 13, he says, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven now we also need to realize that we need to stop saying well there was this small gate in ancient city walls called the eye of the Cam- or the eye of the needle and you could put a camel through it but you had to take off all of its like luggage and stuff that is literally not true i don't know where this thing came from it is not true what jesus was saying was simple he took the largest animal common enough that it would be from their experience and compared it to the smallest aperture everyone would know. Everyone knew what a needle was. Everyone knew in that area what a camel was. Jesus is trying to make the point that it's an impossible situation. A camel cannot go through the eye of a needle. That's why Jesus says at the end of the parable, it is what is impossible for man is possible for God. So it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle for a large object to go through a small aperture than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He condemns repeatedly the Pharisees and scribes for devouring the houses of widows because of their love for money. In the temple, let's remind ourselves, he didn't scourge the religious leaders, he didn't scourge the hypocrites, but the money changers. The experience of how many rich people that do not possess money, but money rather possesses them, is common in all of our experience, people who obsess over it. In Matthew 13, 22, we have the parable of the sower and the seed where Jesus addresses exactly this. He says there's some seed that, yeah, it falls on, on, on the path and Satan steals it. There's some seed that falls in shallow soil and the sun burns it. But there's some seed that falls in good soil, puts down good roots. But what happens? The thorns and thistles and bramble choke it out. And Jesus says clearly the, the thorns and thistles and bramble that choke out the gospel are the cares of the world and delight in riches they choke the word so that it proves unfruitful. In Luke 8:14, we also have this line that they are stifled by the care, the riches, the pleasures of life and never reach maturity. Ooh, that's an important word. So what is Christian maturity if wealth stifles and sterilizes? Life is not just this patch of earth and rock between birth and death. It's not womb to tomb and that's life. That's a fragment of life. It's life, but it's a fragment. Maturity as a disciple of Jesus Christ means that you see life as both the here and the hereafter into one whole. This is the great unity between the temporal and the eternal. And this is very important because for many of us, our Christian immaturity comes precisely when we sacrifice the goods of eternal life for temporal goods and pleasures. So part of our maturity and part of the part that wealth stifles is the fact that we view and take comfort in the wealth and riches of this world. Christ is calling us out of that. So here's a story. So imagine you're a disciple. Again, the whole point is to take on Jesus's words, actions, attitudes, behaviors. Imagine you're a disciple and you see two brothers come to Jesus with an argument over inheritance. Now, rather than solve the problem according to whatever principles of justice, Jesus Christ instead chooses that as an opportunity to speak against covetousness desiring for ourselves more than what we need. Jesus tells us the parable of the rich fool in Luke 13, who rests secure in his fortune only to die and render an account of his life. So what Frank Sheet encourages us to do, if we're trying to learn from the master, from the gospels, the story of the God man's own life, his own words and deeds, the things he values and devalues or attacks, ponder the parable of Luke 13. So go back and read it. It starts in in, uh, verse 13 and reread the parable. You fool, this night your life will be required of you. The accountants have come, so to speak, right? Then slowly read the next 13 verses after Luke 21. Slowly read those. And in your little dream journal next to your Bible, compare your notion of needs with that of Jesus's notion. What really are needs versus wants? Now, remember, this life is not the destination, but the road. The end is not here, but there. Christian disciples have to pass through the lure of this worldly riches. The temptations are palpable. Think about it. How many of us are scared to leave a job that compromises our faith or morals because our living expenses have crept up too high that it's actually paralyzed us? We have a term for it in the secular world. It's called golden handcuffs right? That we feel the money is too good to say no to it, even though it's destroying us. And so we look at what Christ says. Number one, he says, I go to prepare a place for you in John 14, too. He has a place for us, but here ain't it, my friends. Jesus also says, now if you want to talk about prioritizing the future over the present, he also says that if our eye or our hand causes us to sin, to pluck and to cut and to get rid of it, because it's better to enter heaven with one hand or one eye missing than it is to have all the pleasures you can indulge in here on earth and go to hell with everything intact. However good these things are, even the best things here on earth, they will pass. All things shining will pass. Kingdoms, empires, fortunes, oligarchs, tyrants, all things pass, no matter how much they try to fill our horizon today. Therefore, the only thing rational to do is to do what our Lord said. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor thief can destroy. Where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart will also be. Where your treasure is. So he's talking to greedy people and he's saying, your treasure is here and now. Put your treasure into heaven where nothing can be taken. Where your treasure is, there also your heart will be. Now remember, when we talk about Christian prayer, the decisive factor is the heart. That is the place of encounter. The catechism is very clear about this. The heart is the center. The heart of moral action is the center that Jesus is concerned about, not externals, but flowing forth from the heart. So if the heart is the center of prayer, of human action, of encountering with the living God, your heart will follow your treasure, so put your treasure in heaven. Store up heavenly treasures. This is decisive for salvation. The rich may enter the kingdom of heaven, but will only do so when they use their money for good. This is the point of the parable of the unjust or the dishonest steward. It's one of the most confusing of all the parables, right? The elderly steward cheats his master. The accounts have come due. He is going to be cast out. He said, I'm too old to dig, too proud to beg. I know. And what he does is he cuts what other people owe his master, cuts it in half, Gets him to sign off on it and then approves it all so that he can win favor and be welcomed into their homes for saving them a ton of money. And it's fascinating because then the master says, Well, he looked, he looked favorably on the shrewdness of his dishonest steward. And then Jesus says that as the unrighteous man befriends people with unrighteous mammon, let us use mammon for the sake of the friendship of God, right? How much more can we leverage, if we are wealthy, the goods of this earth to advance the kingdom? So Sheed makes this epic point. Use money to build kingdom friendships. But, but if you would be perfect, Jesus says, go and sell what you have and give it to the poor. And here's Sheed's epic point. This is a warning for the church and for church men so many failures and abuses occur in the church. So much disaster happens precisely because of the love of money, of greed, of the pretentiousness of the clergy and laity in ministry. The Protestant Reformation, think about this, it was launched because of the bizarre fundraising campaign for St. Peter's Basilica and how the selling of indulgences detonated Martin Luther. Up in England, Parliament was only too happy to follow King Henry VIII and the Articles of Secession from Rome and supremacy about putting King Henry over the Church, because they said the first thing that they said was Rome was bleeding England dry. Many of the monasteries that Henry VIII confiscated were actually owned by moneylenders because previous abbots took out way too much loan money to build, build, and build. They overbuild, right? So they're they're satisfying their own worldly state. And they crippled their entire religious order, which was then done away with. Now think about this, Sheet says, what was the first ecclesial sin mentioned of in Acts of the Apostles? In the age of the Apostles, Acts chapter five, it's greed between a husband and a wife, Ananias and Sapphira, and they die. And Frank Sheet says, churchmen need to tremble in fear at this and look the needle right in the eye. And coincidentally, recently, The Pillar, which is an independent Catholic news organization done by my homeboy, J.D. Flynn. Love that guy. um, They recently wrote a a summary in an email of some of the Vatican financial scandals that are happening. And they commented that an American journal on accounting had done an assessment of Catholic corruption and and theft. And it was a fascinating article because they basically said – You know, all this, you know, money baskets being passed during mass and all this stuff. It is a target rich environment for theft and it is shockingly low. So that was really good to hear. You you hear all this financial scandal. You're like, oh, dear Lord God, is there any good news, Lord, please? And there is. They said it's actually shockingly low for the fact that fact that loose cash is flying everywhere. And he said, but of priests who steal money from the church, they're almost entirely not young priests or healthy priests. They are older priests who have been burned out and feel resentment or anger towards the institutional church. But Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. What was the Pharisees' response? They scoffed at him. In Luke 16, 14, right after the prodigal son story, Luke explicitly states that the Pharisees were, quote, lovers of money. And so Jesus reiterates the theme of today's show, what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. Jesus is talking about money loving here, but let's be honest, that touches on everything in this world. As we said, it's easy for our vision to be filled with the world, so much so that it blocks the sunlight of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this life passes. As one Protestant missionary said right before he was tortured to death in the Amazon, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he never loses. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he will never lose. Eternity is long. It does not end. This life does end. That's the point of the parables of the rich man and Lazarus and the rich fool. Jesus says you, or Abraham says, you had good things on the earth. You didn't share them. You didn't win over friends with unrighteous mammon, right? And now Lazarus has the better part. But Jesus, not just attacking greed, also attacks human foolishness. So if we need to admit that Jesus' values, priorities, and standards have never been fully lived out or at least embodied in a social or institutional way here, you can't point to the Middle Ages as saying it's a perfect Catholic world. You can't. Because the weaknesses of the will lead us to sin and failure, and the weaknesses of our intellect causes us so often to veer off track. This is foolishness. You remember the scene, you imagine you're an apostle and you're seeing Jesus and they're talking about, someone brings up the kosher laws. They're always dogging Jesus for not adhering to the purity or cleanliness laws. How come you're not washing your hands enough, blah, blah, blah. And Jesus says, it's not the food that goes into the mouth and into the stomach and out into the latrine that makes a man unclean, but rather what comes out of him, what comes out of his mouth makes a man unclean because it comes out of his heart. For instance, you know, Jesus actually goes through a list of 12 things that he says. Now, I don't know about you, but when I often read sacred scripture, when I encounter a list, I read it, but I kind of gloss over it. And this is the thing that an attentive reader should not do. If you're a disciple of Jesus and you're listening to him say that and you wrote this list down, chances are those comments were ones that you need to have tattooed on your brain. You would remember them. And that's how Frank Sheed approaches discipleship in Christ Jesus. So he says, okay, look, of the 12 things, there are five things that are evil actions like fornication and adultery. There are six things that are states of mind, but then the 12th, so that's 11 total, the 12th is foolishness. And I think we would think that's a little bit anticlimactic, like being an idiot, being forgetful. What do you mean being foolish? See, when we put transient things ahead of eternal and unchanging things, that's foolish. When we put creatures ahead of the creator, that is foolish. When we do all of this stuff, when we let fads, fashions, passing opinions, the praise of people who really don't care about us, drive us, that is foolish, right? And this is the self, the asserting of the self, which we'll get to in a second. Christ said that these actions and these states of mind damage the heart. He said, all of these evil things that come out of you come from the heart. All such sins harden the heart. It close it off, closes it off from anything but self-interest. So if we're trying to understand what it means to follow Jesus, this is where the moral, right, and our discipleship and theology all begin to overlap. Okay, okay, so now there's this thing called self-interest. How does Jesus talk about it? Well, when Jesus tells parables, they're usually about one or two things. They're usually either about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed, or the kingdom of God is like this, or kingdom of God is like that, or it's about the individual, especially the individual's heart. When the parables talk about sins, they don't do the list. Jesus in, in Mark's gospel, when he did that list of the 12 things, like that's rare. In the parables, he doesn't do a list. What Jesus does is he focuses on one specific thing in the parable to really drive home a point, right? So the parables about individual persons are also not about like great sinners doing horrific things, but they're usually the average man's sins. Talents wasted, God's gifts unused, self-indulgent actions, emptiness, futility. These are the things that the every man struggles with. And the point is not about this or that sin, the point is actually about the condition of the heart. And Jesus is not offering, as Frank She said, a prescription for a pill to fix what ails you. He's offering you a way of life as the only cure. Let me say that again. He's not offering you a prescription for a pill to fix what ails you. But if you're if the thing that's wrong is your broken and evil heart, the only way to be cured is to adopt the way of life. This is the meaning of be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. As the as the image of God. We mar the image of our heavenly father every time we fail, every time we are imperfect. So walking in the way of the Lord Jesus is how we correct this obsession with self-interest. And so how do we walk in the way? Well, Jesus tells us that the way is love, right? Come on. When he summarizes the commandments, what does he say? He draws in the Old Testament tradition, love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. A little bit later in John's gospel, he gives a new commandment love one another as I have loved you. The funny thing is Jesus never defines love with his words, but he constantly shows it in action. He says things like, if you love me, keep my commandments. He tells us to bear one another's burdens, to bear with one another. He tells us to forgive one another 70 times, seven times, or in Luke's gospel, he says seven times a day, and that we must forgive from the heart. Now, let's look at another from the heart thing that's kind of famous or infamous, depending on how you look at it, is remember when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, you have heard it was said to men of old, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, and see here he's asserting his authority, but I say unto you, if any man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he has committed adultery with her. Now, the point is to get to the desire of the heart. You might hear this and say, oh, "Oh, what's the big deal? It ain't that bad. It's not like I'm doing anything." Frank she said, "Oh, really? Looking at a woman lustfully is not doing anything? Why don't you ask the woman if it's okay for you to look at her that way, or ask her husband if that's okay?" So when Jesus offers a parable or a teaching, he tends to have this laser-like focus on one part of it and he kind of leaves the rest of the part later. So what he's doing is he's focusing just on the element of lustful desire in the Sermon on the Mount about how it ruins the luster's heart, right? That's what he's trying to draw our attention to. I mean, after all, even the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments makes a distinction between the act of adultery and coveting your neighbor's wife. So both the action and the interior desire are addressed in the commandments. It's the condition of the heart that matters. Why? Because the condition of the heart is why prayer matters for the moral life. This is why me and Dave from the beginning of the show have always said you cannot talk about discipleship and hide behind the kerygma. The kerygma brings us to faith in Christ, but then we need the morality. We need to know what sins to leave and what actions to do, what virtues to imitate in order to truly follow Christ as a disciple. And when we Don't want to get in moral debates. We don't want to become culture warriors and all that stuff because we're scared. That's where the rejection comes. Well, guess what? We're not making disciples. Prayer matters because prayer is the union of man with God in Christ Jesus. And specifically, it's the union of our hearts. That's why we have a devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus, like I said earlier, but it's also a devotion to Mary's Immaculate Heart. She's the first disciple whose heart beat at one with her sons. So what keeps my heart separate? from god well that's easy it's me it's myself it's my self self-control right when you're little kids you want your parents try to teach you self-control my teachers every year i always got uh an n for needs improvement under the category exercises self-control and talk excessively, right i do talk excessively but hey i turn that into a uh, whole career podcasting so no harm no foul but when we talk about self-control we don't just mean Controlling this or that speech, like don't just burst out or don't just do something stupid or impulsive. But we ultimately mean control of the self itself, silencing vain self interest, controlling our craving for self assertion. The Sermon on the Mount, where we see Jesus's values, priorities, and standards, are, as Frank Sheed said, a sermon on the self and its control. And he walks you through a handful of the things from the Sermon on the Mount. Like, to be poor in spirit means to have actual humility. Humus, where we get the word hummus, it means earth, to be low, grounded, down to the earth. There's a mystic in the Eastern Church that said, um, they asked him on his deathbed, what did you learn through all your years of mysticism and all the flights of divinity that you experienced? He said, I learned to climb down 10,000 ladders in order to kiss the dust of my own humanity. Humility, right? So not only do we have poor in spirit, but we also have being pure in heart. What does that mean? It means to be singularly focused on God's will, doing the will of the Father. Now, when you hear stuff like turn the other cheek, a lot of people apply that to like war and violence and you know things like uh, capital punishment or the right of self-defense against an unjust aggressor. It's a slap. It's someone slapping you on your face. And Jesus says, turn and offer the other. What is a slap? It's an insult. It's a deeply insulting, if someone slapped me in public, that is deeply insulting. What Christ is speaking against is that all too human resentment, bitterness, rage even that happens over insults. Okay, so that's a, remember, ordinary, everyday actions. Christ wants us to overcome. He's giving us his values, his standards. The things he attacks are the things we need to attack. So then he gives us the golden rule, treat others the way you would want to be treated bear one another's burdens, bear with one another, forgive one another, feed the hungry, clothe the naked. The Sermon on the Mount is deadly serious about these things. These things are salvation and damnation issues. And so to connect a lot of these threads together, it is sheer foolishness, going back to foolishness, it is sheer foolishness in the way that you and I treat one another, the way we judge one another of their actions or their motives the way we impugn their characters so easily as if we are without sin, or let's be honest, we have excusable sins when compared to them. Jesus reminds us that in the sermon, such attitudes and behaviors invite divine judgment upon the self-righteous soul. And let's also remember that niceness is a very long way from those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. All right, everyone, before we get into the sixth and final things, what I want you to do after this commercial break from Ascension Press is do us a favor text EKSB to 33777. That goes directly to Ascension Press and they will put you on our mailing list. This mailing list will include show notes, additional links, and resources for you to continue to walk and follow Christ closely in Catholic discipleship. Okay. So as we walk through this stuff, we want to be able to do it together. So that's EKSB. Text it to 33777, and we'll get you on that mailing list. We'll be right back.
1: Hi, my name's Father Mike Schmitz. I am the host of the Catechism in a Year podcast. If you've been following along with us, you know that God's plan for us is a plan of sheer goodness, that he wants to bring us into a relationship with him. You know that already. One of the ways that God actually brings us into this relationship and keeps us, sustains us in this relationship is through the sacraments. Again, you might know that already. You might further know that so many of us miss out on the beauty and the power of the sacraments, but Ascension has an answer to this. Ascension has created two new programs. One is called Renewed, Your Journey Towards First Reconciliation. The second is Received, Your Journey Towards First Holy Communion. We know that our youth, They're our future, and yet at the same time, it's so hard oftentimes to reach them with this incredible news of God's love for them in reconciliation, God's love for them in the Eucharist. If you want to check out Ascension's new program, Renewed, Your Journey Towards First Reconciliation and Received, Your Journey Towards First Communion, go to ascensionpress.com and sign up for a free preview.
0: So, sixth, what we need to do. What can we deduce from the Gospels about Jesus' own priorities and values? A couple things. Number one, from end to end of the Gospels, from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus really makes clear that all of our choices actually make the difference. They don't seem prescripted or predestined. We cannot be saved without our cooperation with grace. That's the impression you get from reading the Gospels. We cannot be saved without our cooperation with grace, nor can we be damned without our refusal of that self same grace. But damnation, here's the second thing is almost never based on my lack of love for God. My failures in loving him is almost always framed as my failure in loving my neighbor as myself. As 1 John chapter 4 says, whoever does not love his brother is not of God. It's amazing. Lust, forgiveness, mercy, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, Jesus constantly stresses the doing of God's will. Almost every example of our failure to do so is God's will for our neighbor. That's the standard. No greater love is there than this, he who lays down his life for his friends. Jesus says, the greatest love is what I do for my friend, my neighbor. Eternal failure is our refusal to love our neighbor. Self refuses to love God and neighbor, and so God, for all eternity, gives us ourselves. How terrifying is that? That's all we get. Is our self. Finally, the top priority of the Gospels is to do the will of the Father. Jesus heals the self itself. It is no kindness for the doctor not to tell the patient what disease they have, nor the consequences if it remains untreated. The treatment is sure. The treatment will result in the resurrection of the dead. And what is the treatment? But to follow in the way of the Lord Jesus as a faithful loving disciple. God bless.